way, and, uh, and why is it that it has to be him? Why, why are there not many ways, and aren't all religions actually the same, and don't they all, are, you know, they're all trying to head to the same place, heaven, and be with God forever, and all of those kinds of questions that get asked to you as well as uh, to me uh, on, you know, many, many different occasions. And so when I talk with people, obviously you run across people of all different kinds of faith and religion. Uh, here in the Columbus area, uh, you know, the world has come to Columbus, so you have people from all different countries, all different faiths, religious bases, um, some are atheistic, uh, and on and on it goes. And you will probably discover pretty quickly that even though somebody may have a different religion than you, it might be, and it may feel you'll make you feel a little bit guilty over the fact that even though they are of different faith, um, they seem to be nicer than you. Uh, they're a little better father than you are. They, they're more work conscientious than you are. And sometimes we begin to feel guilty about that and think, well, you know, these people don't even know the Lord and, and here they seem to be doing better than, than I am. And maybe they're not even religious at all. They, they are atheists. And, uh, but yet they're one of the nicest people you've, you've ever met. And so clearly, you know, high moral values or whatever. And then you come across a verse of Scripture, John 14, 6, that we've all read many times, where Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then all of a sudden, you're taken back, and you're thinking, well, is that true? Can that be true? And, and why is that true? And it really doesn't seem fair for God to choose this one arbitrary characteristic and to pass over all the other people who are every bit as morally good as I am. It's almost like when you were a kid, you know, and you had a fort, and, uh, you know, when you're small, you're younger, you know, guys, they don't want girls in their fort, so you got to have a password. That kept them out from, you know, getting in your fort. So like, it's like these people don't have the password. They don't have the password, therefore uh, they can't spend eternity in heaven. And, and so really we struggle with that issue, and we are confronted with that issue if you say that Jesus is the only way, uh, that's very exclusive and is very narrow-minded and, quite frankly, very judgmental. So this is the pushback that you and I are going to get. Uh, if you've not already experienced that, I'm sure you will uh, at some point in your life. In addition to that, if you were to ask people today, what is the biggest cause of division and uh, violence in our world, more than likely they're going to say it's based on religion. And quite frankly, they would be right. Because some of the greatest divisions and some of the, the uh, most violent areas of the world is hinging upon uh, various religions. And so, you know, if you believe you, your way is the right way and everybody else is wrong, then I want everybody to come to my side. And so it can create all kinds of friction and it can cause factions and, um, you know, this is why people do the things they do. And so in our culture, uh, in, as um, things are escalating in this area, it's almost as though, um, and I've heard talking points on this and, and read articles, in our culture, religion is almost looked upon as the cause of the world's problems, and therefore it ought to be outlawed. And so there are many articles that are written on that, and some of the legislation that may be tried to push that way because it, religion is looked upon as the blight of society. Uh, it is the cause of so much division and, and violence throughout the, the course of history. The fact is, religion and politics, by their very nature, tend to divide people, does it not? 
right? If you want to see division happen in a family, like yeah, everybody gets together, extended family for Thanksgiving, start talking about religion and politics and see how quickly that declines, uh, you know, in, in conversation. And so those are two hot buttons, two hot points for everybody uh, in our society and around the world. And um, so what happens when, when religion gives you a standard that is considered good and acceptable? And so if you're living by that standard, uh, it's easy for us to become very proud about the fact that we are living according to that standard. And if we look down on other people who don't follow that standard... If you're not careful, you begin to separate yourself from them, and separation breeds unfamiliarity, and unfamiliarity then breeds suspicion. Suspicion, contempt, and contempt will ultimately lead to some kind of violence. This is the world in which we're living. This is the melting pot of our society. So all religions, as a result, kind of get lumped into the basket of sameness, right? I've heard it said a thousand times. Aren't religions all basically the same? Aren't we all just trying to get to the same place? Isn't that what it's all about? So today I want to talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ and why it is separate, distinct from all other um, thought processes when it comes to religion. And at its core, at its core, authentic Christianity, which is not always lived out by the way, but authentic Christianity at its core is one of the most humble, inclusive, loving, peace-promoting worldviews ever given. But I said, if it's lived out that way. In our church history, it has not always been that way. Right? People always throw up in my face, well, what about the Crusades and all these things? And we're going to get to that, not today, but in a a future uh, message. Um, So I'm going to look at the preaching of Peter in Acts chapter 4 and Acts chapter 10. And I'm going to try to address some of the objections that we hear when people read the Bible verse or they hear it taught or somebody brings it up to them. Well, you know, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and life. No one can come to the Father except through him. And so there are several objections that people will bring up to you in response to that verse uh, that you read in the Scripture and what Jesus actually said about himself. So here's the first one is this. Claiming Jesus is the only way to God seems to be a bit arrogant. It just seems to smack with arrogance. Like, uh, we've got the way, we're the superior ones, and, uh, you know, it's our way, our highway, and we've got the true knowledge, and you need to get on board with us. So in Acts chapter 4, you'll recall that um, uh, Peter is, uh, they've been arrested, and uh, he's, you know, back in verse 8 of chapter 4, Uh, Peter and John are before the Sanhedrin, which was like the supreme court of their day. And so it says in verse 8 that Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit and said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called an account today for an act of kindness, remember they just healed a guy who was lame and said, rise up and walk. Um, And so he, he was healed. Then know this and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Now, had Peter responded to the Sanhedrin and said something like, well, Jesus is our way, 
and you have your way, and we've got our way, and let's just all have our own way and just kind of live harmoniously. Nothing would have been done to them, right? So they would have just been left scot-free because that was the Roman philosophy. Rome was very much a pluralistic society. They didn't care if you had your own God. They just cared if you said your own God was the supreme God above all other gods because now that meant that you should be a ruling class of people over them. That's where the push came. And, and certainly here uh, against this um, the Sanhedrin council. And so Rome had conquered the world. And all the world, you know, where they conquered, people came from all nations, all walks of life, and they brought their own gods into the Roman society. And so it's what's called pluralism. And I think I've put this on your outline, which just means there's many ways, many gods. Uh, so you have your God, I've got my God. Great, we're, we're, we're just going to live in harmony and you do your thing and I'll do my thing. And uh, some of the gods, you know, like the Egyptians had their God, which was the God of the Egyptians. The Jews had their God, which was the God of the Jews. Some gods dealt with not geogra- you know, geographical locations, but more of a, you know, a dimension for you know, the God of fertility and the God of travel, the God of war and all these other things. And so the Roman Empire was cool with that. In fact, their history tells us that the only thing they frowned upon, as I mentioned, is that you cannot say that your God is superior to any other God. You cannot claim that your God is the only way. All right? The minute you do that, now they have a problem. In fact, the Romans were so pluralistic in society is that in Rome, they had what's called the Pantheon, which was the house of gods. And so they had a kind of a statue of Caesar on top of that. And so all the gods had their own rooms inside this Pantheon. Marla and I visited that uh, a few years ago when we were in Rome. And so uh, that was just, it was, they just kind of housed all gods. And so the emblem of Caesar above it was basically saying, uh, and the message was that everybody has their own God. And as as long as you acknowledge that your gods are below Caesar, uh, we're not going to enforce Caesar upon you as far as a, as a god, but as long as your god is less than him, we're cool with that. But if you try to say that your god is supreme over Caesar and over Rome, then we're going we're gonna to deem that as, um, you, you know, you, 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 ought, you believe you ought to be the ruling class and the ruling nation over Rome. And so they, they didn't take kindly to that. So this is the setting that Peter finds himself in. Right? So remember that the Sanhedrin, these are Jewish men uh, who are overseeing the religious um, society in the Hebrew culture, and they did not believe Jesus was Messiah, right? They did not believe that Jesus had risen from the dead. And uh, because of that, they said to Peter and John, um, You've got to stop spreading this. Verse 17, you've got to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people. We must warn these men to speak no longer anyone in his name. And then he called them in again and commanded them not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. For we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and what we have heard. And so they say, in essence, look, we've experienced something that is absolutely radically transformed our lives. We're not going to shut up about this. 
So it was the, that world that Christianity was born into. You see, people had this idea that back in the day, everybody just thought their religion was the only way. And when Christianity was introduced, it was just like, you know, kind of absorbed in this, like believe Jesus died, uh, love your neighbor. Yeah, sounds good. Great. Do that. And the only global pluralistic society, you know, didn't start until many, many years after that, which is not true. They, they, the, the church was birthed into a pluralistic society, which everybody has their own gods, and everybody is good with that. And that's going to be real important here um, shortly. So in Roman history, one of the Roman emperors, Servus, decided that the Christians had been persecuted for far too long, and he decided that he's going to give a room to Jesus in the pantheon among all the other gods. Well, how do you suppose the Christians responded to that? Well, great. It's about time you acknowledge Jesus and uh, that you're going to put him in the pantheon with all the other gods. No, that's not what they said. They protested, right? They said, get him out of the pantheon, right? He didn't Jesus never came to be a God among many gods. He is the Lord God. He is the only true God. That's who he is. That's who he claimed to be. That's who he authenticated himself to be when he was resurrected from the dead. We will not tolerate you putting him into a pantheon of all other kinds of gods. That's what got them into trouble. That's what Rome pushed against. That's what the Sanhedrin pushed against. And so the point is that global pluralism is not a new thing like many people think. The apostles claim that Jesus is the only way was a direct challenge to the prevailing pluralistic worldview then and now. And so in Acts 4, Peter is called in and he can't, you know, he's told not to preach this any longer. One of the things people say about claiming there's only one way to God is that that, it seems to me, to be a very arrogant, narrow-minded approach. I hear that all the time. It's bigoted, it's narrow-minded, it's, it's arrogant. Like, you're claiming to have some kind of superior knowledge, some kind of superior advantage point over everybody else, but I want you to notice exactly what Peter is saying here. He is not saying, I know this because I'm so much smarter than you are. I know this because I'm, I'm so much more brilliant than you are. I know this because I have some kind of advantage points over, over you, point over you or have such superior knowledge over you. That's not his approach at all. He just said, look, uh, this is what we have seen. This is what we've heard. This is what we've experienced. And this is what we're going with, all right? I'm not smarter. I'm, I, we saw a guy raised from the dead, and he told us uh, to go and commanded us to go and tell others. You can call that a lot of things. You can call it a lot of things, but arrogance is not one of them. We're not coming to you for, with a, a, a spirit of arrogance or superiority. We're coming to you as the realization that, listen, we were sinners in need of a Savior. We were messed up people, and Jesus absolutely transformed our lives. People today think that if we are humble, then we'll realize that none of us are smart enough to know everything. So the humble thing to do is to recognize that everybody has a perspective, at least equal to ours, and really only when we listen to everybody's perspective will we get the full picture. 
In other words, people will say, if you're not going to be considered arrogant by saying Jesus is the only way, you need to step back, look at all the other religions of the world, get their perspective, because until you have their perspective, you're not really going to know what you're talking about. Right? It's, it's kind of taking a puzzle and looking at the box top, right? So there are multiple pieces to the puzzle representing religion, and only as you put all the pieces of religion together do you actually see the picture on the top of the box. Now, in order to illustrate this, in India, for example, there is a, a folklore that goes around to try to explain the differences in all religions. And it's based on an elephant and three blind men. And so uh, these blind men are told to touch the elephant and to describe what it is that they experience. And so one of the blind men touches the trunk of the elephant and says, well, the, an elephant is like a snake. And another one touches its body and says, well, an elephant is like a wall. And another one touches its tusks and um, it says, well, uh, the elephant is like a spear. And so these blind men are said to represent the world religions because each come from a different conclusion about what they are sensing. Like each blind man, there is no one religion that holds all truth. It's only as you take all religions and put them together do you formulate absolute truth about religion and God and Jesus and all these other things. Um, so religions are simply different paths up the same mountain to the same destination. Each of them is right in what they saw, but each of them was wrong to argue that what they saw was the whole thing. And so in the same way, the parable goes, no religion, basically, is what it's saying is, has the full picture. There's no one religion. You can't say that Jesus is the only way because that's only part of the picture. It's not the whole picture, is what that philosophy would say. And so we hear that in our day and time in different ways. So um, if you're claiming to be able to do, you know, if somebody says, well, uh, the problem with that philosophy is this, is that if you're saying that these three men who touched that elephant um, only have part of the picture, then the only reason you know that because you have the full picture, right? That's the only way you could know that. I've seen the elephant. I'm not blind. I've seen the elephant. I've seen the full picture, and they've, they've only touched part of it, and they've got their own thought about what that is, that part of the body. But since I'm the only one who's seen the elephant, so really, it, it really takes the philosophy and it, it turns it on, it on its head. Who has seen the full picture? Jesus, right? Jesus did not begin on earth, right? Jesus existed eternally. We're going to talk about Jesus' claims about himself and are those true and are they factual and can you prove that? And uh, his claim was that I've come from heaven to earth. He's got the whole picture. He's a part of the whole picture. He claimed to be God. He claimed to be the creator of the heavens and earth. He made these claims. Can I substantiate those claims? And I'm going to say, and a short answer is, yes, you can. Uh, and so that's what Peter is saying. In essence, is look, I'm not coming to you with a superior vantage point. I'm just coming with you knowing what I have experienced. I've spent time with this guy. I've listened to his teachings. I watched him be crucified. I experienced him after his resurrection. And so that brings another point. Can you prove the resurrection? We'll talk about that in a few weeks. 
And therefore, what I've experienced, man, I'll tell you what, you can say whatever you want, and, but I'm, I'm going to tell you what, I've been with a dead guy who came to life, I'm going with him. Now, you can call that arrogance if you want to, but, you know, you, you can either go with your dead gods, or you can go with a guy who died and came back from the grave. That's the one I'm going with. So when people say to me, well, don't you think Jesus being the only way is, is so, so arrogant? And that's just basically my response is, look, all I know is here's what my life was like before Jesus. Here's what Jesus did in my life. Here's what my life is like now. I'm going with the dead guy who came back to life. To which people always say, well, prove the resurrection. Well, hang with me in a few weeks, and I'll do that. So the question ultimately is then, is Jesus who he claimed to be? That's really the the question on the table. And so next week, we're going to spend an entire message just on that. Is Jesus who claims he, he is? Because that is, has huge, huge ramifications. Believing in Jesus is not arrogant, but one of the humblest of all truth claims because it is not that I am smarter. It's not that I'm, I see better or have a better vantage point. I just believe that Jesus is who he says he is, and so I'm going to take him at his word. It is a step of faith. It is not a blind leap of faith. It is a faith that's built upon concrete facts. Number two, the second obli- objection is that I hear a lot, well, if Jesus is the only name under heaven by which we can be saved, um, isn't religion just a matter of personal preference? When it really is all said and done, is it not just a matter of personal preference? You know, you prefer Jesus, I prefer Buddha. Uh, you prefer Jesus, I prefer Allah. Hey, we're all in the same boat trying to get to the same destination. Isn't that, you know, whatever you believe specifically is up to you. Jesus, Allah, Buddha, it's all the same, and that's a private matter. But this is very different from what Peter says. He says, it has nothing to do with what I prefer or what works for me. It has to do with who God says he is and how we get to him. So this really comes down to an issue we'll talk about weeks later is, is the Bible trustworthy? And a lot of people question, right? Well, what makes your book better than anybody else? You know, we've got the Quran, we've got, you know, the books of the Mormon, and we've got all, all these other uh, writings, uh, religious writings, what makes you, your book better. But the prevailing view on religion in our culture really goes back to a guy named Immanuel Kant. Now, Immanuel Kant is a philosopher. If you ever had a philosophy class, you, you've run across this guy. You may not have ever heard his name or ever known anything about him, but I can assure you that your life is influenced by his philosophical thinking. And so let me just kind of break it down to what it is. Um, he said, basically, that all religions are subjective, subjectively helpful, but none of them have objective truth. And so what does that mean? That means that you know, all religions of all the, wor- all the world have their teachings. They're helpful to society. They're helpful to people's lives. But no one religion has absolute truth. Right, that, that's his philosophy. And I said, well, okay. Um, let's say, for example, if I said to you, I think it's hot in here. And you said to me, I think it's cold. 
who's right? Well, that's a subjective thing, right? So I'm basing it upon my uh, body temperature. I'm basing my assumption upon what I consider hot. You're basing it upon your body temperature and what you consider hot or cold. And so if I were to say to you, listen, you are dead wrong. It is hot in here. I don't care what you say. It's hot in here. Right? So I've just taken my subjective opinion and made it an objective truth in your life. I'm forcing it upon you. You have to think like me. Right? So that's what he says that, that what religions are doing. Religions are about, we've got all this subjective knowledge out here and, and, and thought processes, but if I come along and objectively say, but my way is the real way, the only way, the truthful way, everybody else is wrong, he would say, that can't happen. That, that is not truthful. And so, this is why we have the statement that you hear all the time, what works for you is good for you, what works for me is good for me. It came out of his philosophy. And it very much permeates our society today. Well, I, you know, it's okay. Just be whatever religion you want. Whatever works for you, works for you. Whatever works for me, works for me. We're all going to make it in the end anyways. Right? We're all heading up the same pathway to the same destination, and we'll one day all get there and, uh, you know, sit around campfire and sing Kumbaya. All religions are subjectively helpful. None are objectively true. It's just a question of what works for you. I talk to a man um, probably a couple times a month. There's a restaurant I go to for breakfast a couple times a month. And uh, his name's Carl. He's 80 years old. And Carl very much holds to this philosophy. Uh, Carl is very well read. He's studied every religion unknown to man. Right now he's working. His, he's, really, he's literally reading through the Quran. He's about three quarters of the way done. We have some very lively conversations, as you, as you might uh, well. So he really, the religion he lands on is Taoism. Um, and so, but, uh, so we have some lively discussions about this because really, whether he realizes it or not, he falls right into the realm of Immanuel Kant's philosophy that you know, all religions are, you know, subjectively has some truth, but nobody has the ultimate truth. I'm just going to land on the one that's working for me. And so he's decided that's what works for him. And so Peter is saying is, I'm not talking about my personal preference. I'm talking about what Jesus, who Jesus was. He, you know, he was raised from the dead and, and, and about the things that he said. And so basically, you have a choice to make in life. Who are you going to follow? All right? You've got to make that choice. Who are you going to follow? You're going to follow somebody in life. Who is it going to be? Is it going to be um, Buddhism? If it's going to be Hinduism? Is it going to be Mormonism? Is it going to be... Because all religions are not the same. They don't teach the same things. They don't look at Jesus the same, and we'll look at that next week. They don't even teach the same things about you. There is a great divergent, divergent differences in all religions around the world. They're not one and the same. And so you have to make up your mind. If, if whatever your preference is, um, who are you going to follow? You have to choose. Who defines what really is? Is it the world system? Is it your parents? Is it just me as a pastor? Is it um, you know, what you were taught in school, how you were challenged? Or is it Jesus, right? Who are you going to listen to? Who are you going to follow? Who are you going to trust? 
And you say, well, it's Jesus, but I'm not sure I can trust the Bible. I mean, there's a a group of scholars called the Jesus Seminar uh, years ago who came and along and tore up the Bible and says, well, only a, less than a third of what we have in the Bible is what Jesus actually spoke or actually said. How did they come up with that conclusion? How did they arrive at that? They said his, they denied his, his miracles and all kinds of other stuff. And so most people say, well, I really just struggle with the fact that Christianity seems to be exclusive. Every religion is exclusive. Every religion is exclusive. Let's take Islam for a moment. Teaches that there's one God, Allah, and Muhammad is his chief prophet. And in Islam, heaven is a paradise of sensual pleasures for some, and hell is for those who oppose Allah and reject the teachings of Muhammad. And so the only way that you can go to heaven is to convert to Islam, which includes believing the six main doctrines and practicing the five duties of Islam. That's the only way you're going to get there. So that's an exclusive thing, right? So they claim they have the truth, they have the way, they have the life. And so everything they teach contradicts what Jesus taught. And so Jesus claimed, I'm the way, I'm the truth. There is a truth. I am the truth. I am the light. No one comes to the Father except through me. So it just really comes down to who are you going to believe? Who are you going to follow? Who are you going to walk after? Who's telling you the truth? I'm going with the dead man who came back to life. You choose for yourself. You have to choose because you cannot stick Jesus in a pantheon of gods and just try to like put it all together and have a buffet-style religion where I'll borrow a little from here and a little from there and a little from here, and I'll just pull it all together in order that um, I build a system that satisfies what I want, how I want it, and the way that I want it. What I mean by that is this. Years ago, uh, I'm gonna have, how many of you remember Larry King? Larry King Live is a broadcaster, a Jewish man, for years and years and years, probably interviewed more people than anyone uh, in the history of our, our country. And so he was asked one night, if you could interview one person in the world, who would it be? And without hesitation, he said, I want to interview Jesus Christ. And the follow-up question was, well, if you had one question you could ask him, what would it be? And without hesitation, he says, I would ask the question, Did, were you really born of a virgin? Did that really happen? And then he followed up. Here's why I would ask that question. Because if Jesus was actually born of a virgin, that is, he was, he was um, conceived by the Holy Spirit, God in the flesh, that changes everything. It changes everything. How I view life, how I'm going to live life, what I need to do with him, uh, it confirms that um, you know, my, my life has, has got to be changed. If Jesus is God, he said, I need to reorient my whole life around his claims. And the same is true for you and me. The answer to the question, who is Jesus, changes the way we live our lives. Everything changes. If Jesus is God and he is creator of the universe, and that was Peter's point. Everything changes. Every religion affects the way that we live. 
Let's take Hinduism, for example, that believe in karma and reincarnation, but they do not believe in helping the suffering in their own country. Why? Because they believe the reason you're suffering in this life is because it's karma from a previous life, and you're in the process of reincarnation. So if they help you in your suffering, they will somehow disrupt the process of your reincarnation, so they won't. So then you put Mother Teresa in the middle of all that, who is out there helping the poor and the helpless and the suffering. And so what you believe greatly affects the way you live your life. And so Peter's whole argument is, what we have seen, what we have heard, what we've experienced has so radically changed our lives, we cannot and will not stop talking about Jesus. He is the only way. There's no other name under heaven by which you can be saved. There's no other name under heaven by which you can enter into God's presence except through his son, Jesus Christ, because of who he claims to be and who he demonstrated himself to be. Here's the third objection. Well, claiming there is one way to God then, that seems very divisive, very divisive. Doesn't it cause people to feel superior to others and look down on them, despise them? So I want you to turn to Acts chapter 10, and I've just got a few minutes to um, kind of wrap this up, so I'm going to kind of summarize this exchange. So um, you'll recall that um, in chapter 10 and verses 2 through 16, I'll just kind of um, summarize that, is that Peter is a leader of uh, the Jerusalem church. He has been a disciple of Jesus. I mean, he's the guy who said back here in Acts 4, so we're not going to shut up about this. And so Peter's up on the rooftop, and he, he has a dream, right? He's, he's smoking a cigar before dinner, and a sheet comes down. It's got all these unclean animals on it. Now, you've got to remember that Peter is a Jewish man, and so they did not eat unclean animals. And so he couldn't figure out, well, what's this all about? What is this dream about? Well, at the same time, God had given Cornelius, who was a, a Roman soldier, a, a dream also. And the Bible says that that Cornelius was a very good man, very, very astute, you know, God-fearing man, trying to find God, trying to come after God, you know, and just his, his heart was bent in the right direction towards God. And, uh, and so the emphasis there is, is on how, how well he was. And so Peter has this dream in chapter 10 and verse uh, 17, it says, um, while Peter was wandering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. And so, um, you know, they're going to come in. Um, it says, while Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you, so get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. And so, uh, remember, Peter, a Jew, their thought process was, we are superior to other people, right? We've got the true God. We've got the the Torah, and everybody else is inferior to us. Gentiles are inferior to us, and, and so on and so forth. So there was great, a great rift of division between the Jews and the Gentiles. As far as the Jews were concerned, you were the Jew or you're a Gentile, right? So if you're Gentile, eh, you're, not, you're not on the right side of the tracks. So God's giving him this vision. He's not completely understanding it yet, but Cornelius' guys are coming in to bring him to Cornelius' house. And so after the, this vision, Peter goes to Cornelius' house, and look what he says in verse 28. He says, he says to them, you are, welcome aware that you, are you, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with a Gentile or to visit him? 
But God has shown me that I should not call any man impure or unclean. So when I was sent, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent for me? Now, don't miss this. Peter would have never come to Cornelius' house, the Gentile, had God not given him a vision that says, listen, I'm making unclean things clean. And therefore, when the, his men show up, he goes to Cornelius' house, says, you know, this isn't right, uh, but obviously God has sent me here for a reason. Why have, you, why have you sent for me? Look in verse 34. Then Peter began to speak. Uh, I, I realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts men from every nation who fear him and do what is right. You know the message of God sent to the people of Israel telling the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all? You know what has happened throughout Judea, beginning in Galilee, after the baptism that John preached? How God has anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went throughout doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. And so what's, what's Peter doing? He's, he's given Cornelius the gospel. Now notice what it says. Um, he commanded us to preach, the, in verse 42, to the people and to testify that he was the one whom God appointed as judge and living in the dead. And all the prophets testify about him everywhere who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles, for they had heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Now notice two things that happened to Cornelius. Speaking in tongues and praising God. There was a dramatic change in Cornelius' life and a dramatic change in Peter's life in this moment in time. Praising God indicates a huge change for Cornelius because up to this point, people had praised him for his goodness, his ethnics, uh, you know, how, how astute he was, right? And um, you, you might have expected Peter to come to this guy because he was such a good guy and say, hey, Cornelius, you're such a great guy. You're so praiseworthy for the way that you, you have lived your life and you're, you're looking for God and seeking after God. Man, you are praiseworthy over those. God wants you to know that he appreciates that and that's why he's going to take you to heaven. Is that what Peter says to him? Absolutely not. Despite his goodness, despite his moral life, Peter gives him the gospel. All right? The gospel does not come to divide. The gospel comes to unify. We're all in the same boat. You're never going to into heaven because of your good moral works. Yet that's what almost every religion teaches, is that do these good things, do these five things, do these things, and you'll enter into heaven. Or most people think to themselves, well, at the end of my life, if my good outweighs my bad, I'm in. And that's all that matters. And so then we look at people, while they were a good moral person, surely to goodness, they entered into, into heaven. But the gospel says your morality is not what makes you acceptable to God because when our hearts are exposed, God sees that we're all sinners. God sees what lies beneath the surface of our hearts, and quite frankly, it's ugly. It's like Nicodemus who came, you know, right? He was a really religious guy, part of the Pharisee clan, comes to Jesus. Jesus doesn't say, Nicodemus, man, because of your such moral uprightness and your religious religiosity, man, you're in. 
No, he said, unless you're born again, you will not even see the kingdom of God. My point is this, the gospel doesn't come as a reward to morality. It challenges our whole way of thinking about morality. No one will get to God because he distinguished himself as a moral person. And so Cornelius is praising God. He's not praising himself. He's praising God because of what God has done for him. The gospel means that no person can ever proudly distinguish himself from others because we're all in the same boat. It's not here to divide. It's here to unify. What about um, the speaking in tongues? Um, What is he saying there? Well, it indicates a change in Peter. Peter recognized that the same thing happening here is the same thing that happened at Pentecost. When all the apostles, the tongues of fire, the Holy Spirit came on, they were speaking in other languages. So Peter understands now, oh, wait a minute. God accepts the Gentiles into his kingdom. This is a novel thing. We never thought this would happen. Because one of the things that a Jewish man would pray every day is, thank God for not making me a slave, a woman, or a Gentile. And yet all three of those are the ones that are being birthed into God's kingdom. And the Holy Spirit is falling down upon them, and they're receiving the gifts of tongues. And so it is an indicator to Peter that, listen, the gospel has not come to divide humanity. It has come to unite humanity. So when you read the books of Acts, you see great unity happening among diverse people of all backgrounds, all cultures, all races, united under the banner of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's only as we allow our thoughts of superiority to creep in do we begin to look down on people as though they are not worthy of the gospel of Jesus. This was never God's intent. His intent was always to unify humanity through the gospel of Christ. And so everybody has an exclusive view of what is good and bad You separate the good from the bad, the enlightened from the unenlightened. The question is, which set of of exclusive beliefs produces the most peace? Loving, inclusive attitude towards humanity, and I believe it is the gospel of Jesus Christ. I put it this way in my notes. Christianity is exclusive, but it's the most inclusive exclusivity there is. Here's the last one. Slow down. Here's a big one I get. It is cruel, absolutely cruel for you to say that Jesus is the only one. What about those who never heard? What about those who never been exposed to God? What about all those people? And we'll get to that in another message. Um, I want you to think of it in terms like this. Here's my final question. If there's a lot of different ways, why the cross? Why the cross? And if Jesus could have done it some other way, why would he do the cross if there's multiple different ways to God, if there's multiple different pathways? Why would he endure the cross? Why would God clothe himself in human flesh and come into the world and allow humanity to beat, pluck out beard, flog, crucify thrust swords into his side, why would he go through all of that if there are multiple different ways? You see, the death of Jesus for our sins is at the heart of the gospel. It's the good news. But what the church has considered good news, the rest of culture considers bad news. It's good news because Jesus dies so that God can forgive sin. 
Why is it necessary? Why couldn't God just forgive sin? Why couldn't he just let everybody off the hook? Like, you guys sinned, okay, I got it, back in the garden, uh, uh, let's let everybody off the hook. Let's just, for, you know, bygones be got bygones. Because sin always re- re- results in that de- debtor relationship we've talked about before, right? So if, if there's a debt-to-debtor relationship, one of three things have got to happen. Either I have to forgive you, and, and release you from the debt you owe me, or you're going to have to pay the debt you owe me, or we're going to have to agree you pay and I pay. Well, here's what God did with humanity. This is how he demonstrated his love. This is why the cross was necessary. It was a demonstration of God's love. God says through the cross, I will forgive, therefore I will absorb the debt that humanity owes to me. I will bring, I will bring the wrath of myself upon myself so that I can execute forgiveness out of love towards you. Now, all of us know as human beings that one of the most difficult things for us to do is to forgive, to bear the cost instead of making the wrongdoer pay for what they've done, right? You know that some horrible things may have happened to you at the hands of somebody else. And then you read in the Bible that we are to forgive them as Christ forgave us. That's a hard task for we as human beings. But it's because it requires to us to go from death to resurrection and experience nails and blood and sweat and tears. Because inside of us, we are screaming out, but I want justice. I want justice. That person has to pay for what they've done. How much justice do you think was crying out of the heart of God that came rolling down and cascading down upon his son? Because that's what love does. Love forgives. Love repairs what's broken. That's why Jesus says, I come to seek and to save those who are lost. The word lost means broken beyond repair. Not because you're wandering around something. That's what love does. That's what Jesus did. And there's no other religion in all of the world who has a Savior who is God in the flesh who came into the world and offered himself up as a sacrifice for the forgiveness of your sins and mine as an act of his love. You choose who you may follow. I'm going with the dead man who came back to life. It's about it. Maybe you're